Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen? How do I make money for my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match with you great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. I use Anchor in a simple matter. I take my podcast episodes, edit them in Premiere, upload them to Anchor and schedule them and set my tags and my description, all that good stuff. Just sit back and let it distribute to all the platforms. It's very simple and very easy to use and very user-friendly. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start to join me and a diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Let's go. This is the Chase in the Frame podcast, where we interview people in the TV and film industry, talking about their journey, how they got to where they are today. We do this podcast for the frame chasers. This is for those in the film industry, going hard, let them know who we are. Frame chasers, we're, we're not chasing the fame, no, no. Tell them what we do. Chasing the Frame. This is the Chasing the Frame podcast with your host, John DeMarco. Let's go. What up, Frame Chasers? It's Wednesday, and you already know what it is. A new episode of Chasing the Frame, episode 70. And today, oh, I'm sorry, episode 71. And today I'm with Eric Christopher Myers. Eric is a, from what I saw on IMDb, editor, writer, actor, as well as a film critic, director, writer for, and also writer for Ain't It Cool News. Am I missing anything? Uh, autism acceptance advocate. Okay, we'll take that on as well. Let's add that one. <laughs> we'll add that one. It's added to the list of things you are, sir. You are a Renaissance man, from what I've what I've read. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, sir. Uh, but before we get into the show with Eric, uh, I have to do the obviously awesome things of housekeeping, which everyone loves. So you can skip past this if you want. So first off, we have to thank our affiliate partners, Artlist.io. Honestly, the best music licensing platform for any type of content creator. Thousand new songs every day and unlimited downloads, which is always a plus, especially when you're trying to find music for any project. That's always the hardest part. Artlist.io makes it easy and simple. Guys, if you join in our affiliate link today with our affiliate link today, which is in the description below, you'll get one year and two extra months for free. So check out Artlist, uh, an inspiring music licensing platform created by filmmakers for filmmakers. Second, we have merch for you at teespring.com slash stores slash chasing dash the dash frame not only are we selling shirts that uh say you know hashtag frame chaser or our proof by bear which is our wonderful dog producer bear uh we also have frame chaser mask for ten dollars it's a very comfy cloth mask and super stylish and you let people know you're a frame chaser on set third uh we have also our affiliate partner with production apparel who has awesome shirts like you know your aspect ratios and other awesome shirts as well and also for rap gear you can buy some stuff there so check that out in the link below and fourth uh if you want to donate to the church of the frame three ways to donate paypal.me slash ctf podcast one-time donation to patreon five dollar a month membership uh where you get early access to audio and visual content a week before it airs and three in the description below you'll see links to our trust wallet that's our cryptocurrencies that whatever ones you want to send us you can 
And then on top of that too, please like our Facebook page as well as subscribe to the YouTube page. So let's get to it. Who's ready to chase frames today? So Eric, welcome to the show, brother. Uh, first question I ask everyone on the show is where are you from originally? I am a Maryland boy and I've, I grew up in Western Maryland, moved to Baltimore, and I have been part of the sort of weirdo collective of post John Waters, um, artsy fartsy type since. Awesome. And then the second question I ask everyone on the podcast is what was that first movie, TV show, actor, director, you know, any creative that spoke to you and you said, I want to be in this crazy world of filmmaking. It's weird because I came into it from the writing angle Mm -hmm. and uh, my father, when I was very, very young, he read the Lord of the Rings to me as like a a serialized bedtime story. And that was how I got hooked on concept storytelling. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at this time there were no movies. And so I'm growing up saying I I have to somehow, you know, take what's happening in these amazing, you know, Star Wars movies Mm -hmm. that are right now coming out and someday grow up and be a filmmaker. And I've got to be the guy who makes Lord of the Rings. I missed the whole Lord of the Rings thing, but I did end up making movies subsequently. So, hey, at least you got uh, one victory. Yeah, victory. Victory is right. Uh, I do have a few questions about Lord of the Rings for you then. One, how do you feel about the cartoon version of Lord of the Rings? Have you ever seen it? The, are we talking about the the Ralph Bakshi Lord? I'm sorry, you broke up for a second. Oh, oh yes. The Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings yes, or sir. the Rankin-Bass Return of the King? Uh, first, the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings, and then we'll talk about the Rankin-Bass Return of the King. So, your thoughts on those? Sure. The, I, I, I mean, I love them. Yeah. I love them in the sense that that was, you know, as a kid, that's all we had. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, you know, I think a lot of people you know, particularly of the younger set, and this is when I'm going to start sounding like a, an angry old man yelling at a cloud <laughs> or whatever. Um, you know, part of my my pre-adolescence and teenage experience working in a comic book store yeah. and, you know, trying to, you know, get published in fanzines and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know, th- there was a, this time before the internet where you had comic book stores and you had, um, you know, video rental stores and that's where all of your conversation happened Mm. and that was where you found out all the bullshit rumors but all the things that were really in development and so you know as as during that time if you wanted to see spider-man you needed to buy a spider-man comic book because that was the only way you were ever going to get and you had to you know use your mind to visualize the things that we now see in Mm. movies there was this glorious time where you sort of like said, whatever I have right now, and it is limited. It is yeah. not, you know, the fullest realization of what this thing could be. Yeah. But I have to learn to love this for the medium and, you know, that it's being presented in. Yeah. So with that being said, I loved the animated Lord of the Rings um, movies when I was a kid because that little pad. But even then I realized they were fucking awful. So, you know, it's like. <laughs> You know, somebody hands you a glass of toilet water when you're in the the desert, you will happily guzzle that that glass of toilet water. But is it the water you want? Mm. Probably not. I I saw that post uh, Fellowship of the Rings, actually. So I I saw that way after like Fellowship came out and stuff like that. So like one day I rented it from, I think, Blockbuster. There we go. Outdating myself kind of sort of, I guess, in a little bit. And I was like, what is this? And I was just so like, 
blown away because it was, uh, you know, it was obviously animation, but also there was that rotoscoping or whatever that live action aspect to it as well too. And it was just a, it was like a complete mind fuck for me when I saw it because I, I think also I was playing at the time the Fellowship of the Rings video game and the Hobbit video game because I rented I think the Lord of the Rings and then I rented the Hobbit as well because I know they made that a movie, an uh, animated movie. And then I watched The Return of the King, and I thought that was complete trash. From not the movie, the the anime. Yeah, movie. I mean it's 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 interesting because we have this um, small but very unique category of films uh, where they are objectively very bad, and yet they are so significant because they they aimed for the fences yeah. and ended up you know, coming out with something that was just such a fucking, you know, fuster cluck that it could not have been intended to ever be that way. Yeah. And that's what sort of makes it so incredible. And, you know, movies like Exorcist to the heretic, yeah. you know, you could not have planned what that movie became. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting for that reason. And so Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings is the same thing in so many ways, because if you look at it, yeah, it was cutting edge. Yeah. You know, they were taking old Disney techniques where they rotoscope, you know, brief moments or, or what have you for a more fluid lifelike, you know, appearance. But this was, you know, just done for a shot or yeah. something. Um, the entire Lord of the Rings, with the exception of like two or three animated shots, everything was live action yeah. and painted over. And it's, it never been done before. It's so audacious. Yeah. Um, it's, ugly as fuck and the the direction is so uninspired but i mean it's just you watch it and it's like you're watching somebody's fever dream and and what yeah and also it leads it ends at the two towers and then when you watch the you said the it's the return of the king one totally different animation style right if it's been a long time since i watched that one but like it's yeah there was a there was a studio um, called Rankin Bass, and they're the ones who did like um, the the classic Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer yeah, yeah. and Frosty the Snowman, the stop motion animation yeah. that we all know. They also did a movie called The Last Unicorn, but um, they did an animated version of The Hobbit for television mm. in '77. Um, whether you like it or not, it was very successful yeah. and it won a number of awards. And so Rankin Bass immediately went into production on their sequel. And they had, for some weird reason, they only had the rights to The Hobbit and The Return of the King. They did not have The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers. So they immediately go into their sequel to The Hobbit, which ultimately came out in 1980, and it was going to be called Frodo, The Hobbit Part Two. And they did that because at the exact same time, and this was this weird case of overlapping rights, Ralph Bakshi at United Artists had the rights to do the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, including the return of the King. Wow. It was so batshit insane. So he's making that at the exact same time that Rankin Bass is doing the yeah. return of the King, but neither had anything to do with one another. Well, this is kind of interesting that we started off with this and I think we're going to skip ahead because I read something very fascinating and, and, and it kind of transitions to this next thing, that, but further ahead of what I was going to ask you, but you are one of the first critics to review Paul Schrader's uh, Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist, that I read on your IMDb bi- uh, bio, if I'm not mistaken, right? Now, what I find fascinating about that, because it's a transition, is because 
nine months prior, Rennie Harlan's the the Exorcist uh, beginning comes out, and yeah, so that's it's very interesting with the rights and like the production of that because it all it stars uh, Stellan Skarsgård in both of them. If I'm not mistaken, it's just completely different movies. If right, like I mean, I didn't watch them because I'm 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 a little uh, afraid of actual Exorcist movies. They kind of freak me out a little bit. But uh, but I know the history a, a little bit about it. Where it's like Rennie Harlan made it, then Paul Schrader made this one. They made two different, like completely different movies, and like it was just a, a cluster of, or a clusterfuck, as we were saying earlier, of a movie. So how what, how'd you get? First of all, how did you real get that? Yeah. It's a real interesting situation, and I guess I, I guess I preempted this by mentioning Exorcist Two earlier. Yeah. But I I used to write for a movie website called BloodyNews.com, and this was mm. back in the wild west days of the internet. Yeah, um, you know, of fan sites and everything. You know, the the fact that I write for Ain't It Cool News now is like I feel sort of like I've I've reached you know, the tippy top at yeah. least in terms of the sort of outlets that were so important to me during that era. Um, but the, the the interesting thing was that I did a lot of writing on the Exorcist series Mm -hmm. and it just sort of opened a couple of doors that, you know, allowed me to meet the right people at the right time. Yeah. Ultimately culminating in getting to watch the Exorcist with William Peter Blatty in his living room, which was just one of the greatest experiences of my entire life. But, um, at, at any rate, they, they, as in uh, the, the studio Morgan Creek, decided they wanted to do an Exorcist prequel. They hire Paul Schrader, who is this, you know, indie auteur. He's also the guy who wrote uh, Taxi Driver yeah. and The Last Temptation of Christ and Raging Bull. Um, and he's become a very, very uh, successful art house director since. Mm-hmm. And they hire him to do a prequel to The Exorcist. They give him the script and they go, we want you to make this movie. And then the movie is made. And in sort of shades of what we would see, you know, two decades later with the Disney Star Wars debacles, um, Morgan Creek looks at Paul Schrader's movie and they go, we don't like this. We are going to literally take this away from you and put it on a shelf and we are going to forget we ever made it and we're just going to completely remake it from scratch. And they bring in like Paul Schrader's equal and opposite. It's Rennie Harlan. I mean, these guys could not be more different, (laughs) but in what is like the ultimate film school experiment. Yeah. They give Rennie Harlan more or less the exact same crew. They go, we've already built these sets. So you have to use these sets. Here is the exact same cinematographer. This cinematographer, Vittorio Storaro, who did Apocalypse Now, I mean, yeah. this guy is like a giant in the industry, lit Paul Schrader's movie and all of his sets in one very specific way. Mm-hmm. In Harlan's movie, exact same sets lit completely the opposite way. And, what? I mean, the compare and contrast of all of these elements of cinematography and set design yeah. and things like that, it's, it's amazing when they're the same things yeah. as interpreted by these two different directors. And it's more or less the same script with some alterations. But the point is they put out the Ray Harlan movie. It tanks. Yeah. And they now have to recoup, not just the cost of this one movie, but the fact that they made two movies in the first place. Yeah. So they release the Paul Schrader movie as like this, you know, earth Two parallel universe uh, version of the same thing. 
And we now have this incredible opportunity to sort of say, what happens when you have two very different um, storytellers who are given the exact same toolboxes and told, make your version of this and you sort of see what they both come back with. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Just like, you know, reading about it, like, and you telling the story about that too. It's like Morgan Creek sounds like they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Also, I mean, Rennie Harlan post uh, Cutthroat Island is not the best Rennie Harlan. Like, and I own Cutthroat Island, and I'm 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 ashamed to say I'm a fan of Cutthroat Island as much as as much as it's hated on. <laughs> but post well, it's interesting yeah. because that movie. I mean, that was like the biggest disaster since heaven's gate yeah i know you know in the sense that you know i mean it like it wasn't just that people didn't like it and that doesn't mean that that you liking it is a bad thing it's just so fascinating when you look at this movie and go this isn't just an example cutthroat island of being a film that people perhaps didn't connect with or it didn't recoup its costs it was like it brought an entire studio system down it like destroyed The entire studio that financed it. It's the Heaven's Gate Part 2. It's the Heaven's Gate Part 2 with, you know, where they ruined United Artists. And then also, I think Superman 4 ruined uh, Canon Films, was it? Or uh, not Canon. It was Carlico. Carlico, yeah. It ruined Carlico, right? Superman 4, yeah, because that was a disaster as well. Um, Superman 4 was, so Superman 4 was Canon. Yeah. And then Carlico was, I guess that was... Cutthroat Island, I think Long Kiss Goodnight, which Harlan also did. Yeah. But they did Terminator 2, and that was like their big one. Oh, yeah. They did do Tar- Terminator 2. Yeah. So, yeah. it's just, But it's these cases of these, just like you said, you know, with, with um, you know, Giacchino and, and, and Heaven's Gate yeah. and these movies that, and it brings it right back to Lord of the Rings. If Lord of the Rings had failed, New Line Cinema would have been done. Oh, yeah. That would have been the end of New Line. You would have had that first movie come out and have it, you know, a disaster. And mm-hmm. the second two would have been like finished on the, you know, two dollar and ninety nine cent side yeah. and thrown immediately out to to DVD. And that would have been the end of New Line. And you just you see these these, and you have to respect these sort of maverick producers yeah. who take these you know giant risks and make these enormous gambles. And sometimes it works for them, and other times it is the opposite yeah. of working. And how do you feel about the actual Hobbit series that Peter Jackson did as well then? Like it it's not the the, the magic's not there anymore with, with the Hobbit and also and then I have another follow-up question after that one too as well for you. But we'll ask about the Hobbit first. Um I'm I'm just going to take this opportunity to do a little bit of shameless self-promotion Go and ahead. say that <laughs> If you uh, if you feel like reading um, very long deep dive articles uh, breaking franchises apart into pieces and looking at sort of all of the elements that make it what it is as a total, I write for Ain't It Cool News. I write these you know thirty two days of Star Wars oh, wow. series, yeah. you know thirty one days of horror movies, and you know the entire Batman cinematic experience, mm-hmm. and I try to bring up topics that haven't been brought up before and really yeah. get in there. Um, I'm about to do one on middle earth. And oh, wow. so I'm going to be, it's probably going to be, you know, like a month straight of these, you know, long essays, these long form essays uh, per day. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to break down the Lord of the Rings, but really break down the Hobbit as well. Yeah. And which is a trilogy that spoiler alert, I don't think works. 
I agree um, with you hundred percent. Because it should not have been any more than two films tops. I also agree with and you on that too. <laughs> it's it's like it's it, it's it's the exact opposite of the Lord of the Rings, where you have this mammoth, gargantuan epic, and you have storytellers sitting down and saying, "Okay, how do we retain the spirit and structure of what this thing is, but distill it down to its most important elements, and still produce in its extended version something that's eleven and a half hours long?" So, I mean, they, they did an amazing job of condensing something mm-hmm. and getting it down to, you know, depending on which versions you watch, nine and a half or 11 and a half hours long. With The Hobbit, it was the exact opposite where they take something that's, you know, like basically you, you can sit down and you can read The Hobbit in a day. Yeah. You know, it, this is a very short book. And I realize there are a lot of, you know, areas of, you know, where where things that would be scenes in a movie are just described in a sort of throwaway sentence. I see the opportunity to, to expand. But this was the opposite of Lord of the Rings where you have this very small thing and now you're trying to balloon it into something that does not support that mythic sort yeah. of stature and needs to be, you know, something probably closer in tone to the Princess Bride or Stardust. Yeah. And... um yeah, it's it feels very soulless and about trying to make money because that's exactly what it was. Yeah, and and my follow up question to you about the whole Lord of the Rings, and there's one more thing I want to bring up too, which I just realized there's a movie that that did the same thing as kind of uh, the 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 Exorcist too. But um, oh my gosh, the Lord of the Rings thing. Have you have you heard about the remastering? What what Peter Jackson's doing? He's as people are saying on the internet, George Lucasing, uh, Lord of the Rings. I, if you're talking about about the new releases that just came out on 4K, I literally just watched them. And um, I watched them over the weekend in sort of a marathon. And it's, it's interesting because for, for home video, you know, nerds, the Lord of the Rings was sort of like, it came out on DVD, particularly the extended versions. I mean, that was when, physical media sort of recognized its potential to not just deliver you a movie, but to deliver you this deep dive experience all about the movie, all of these supplementary Mm -hmm. features and documentaries that you didn't get on VHS. Um, Maybe you would get something on HBO behind the making of whatever you would see that sometimes in the eighties and early nineties DVD really exploited the format. Yeah. Um, and it really, really came to fruition with the Fellowship of the Ring Extended Edition, where, you know, there was like, you know, four commentary tracks for that movie yeah. uh, from four different different departments. Uh, there were so many behind the scenes features, you know, ranging from how did we adapt this thing to what is digital color grading? Yeah, People oh, never wow. seen digital color grading yeah. for the most part outside of animation. And it's being applied to a, you know, 35 millimeter film to try to make it look like an Alan Lee watercolor painting. Yeah. So all of these, these things that were really groundbreaking and you could sit there and watch a 40 minute documentary on forced perspective. I did. Do, and I it did. was amazing. Yeah, I didn't do that. Um, and so, you know, that the Lord of the Rings was was the apex of that and yeah. everything else sort of tried to imitate it. And, you know, when New Line was really absorbed into Warner Brothers, 
the Lord of the Rings Blu-rays that came out were just half-assed in the way that they were thrown together. They they weren't true upscales. They were just the same versions that had been on the DVD, mm. uh, poured it over with less compression. Uh, with the exception of the, the Fellowship of the Ring, where they accidentally slapped some green filter over the film. And so it's looked like you know, it, it's it's had this sort of sickly green quality to it that you can really see in, you know, snowscape scenes and whatnot mm-hmm. where the, you know, snow is green. Yeah. It's weird. Um, these new 4K discs contain absolutely no supplemental features, oh. but the upgrade, first of all, the colors are returned to what they were supposed to be. In some cases, that you know, they've sort of gone in and tweaked the color palettes. Yeah. But... It's it's so in, encouraging to see movies that are almost twenty years old that don't suffer for the cleanup, and they haven't been redone. It's that they've you know gone back to the camera negative. They've they've okay. rescanned the film. They've they've upgraded the effects in the sense that they've rescanned them and recomposited them, oh, okay, but they gotcha. haven't altered the effects at all. Okay. The only thing that's different really is in flashback sequences. Uh, they have been recolored in a way that's very interesting and kind of looks more like the Hobbit movies in a lot of ways. But um, a few minor nitpicks aside, I mean, it, it's like the pinnacle of yeah. 4K presentation that I've seen thus far, and it's worth every cent. I might have to buy that, actually. That might be my first 4K Blu-ray then. For, for my it's collection. absolutely worth it. And, yeah. you know, I have you know written at length about the star wars pre and the fact that they were you know so cgi reliant yeah and we, we have to at the same time you know we have to credit a movie like the phantom menace and say that you know this is the first time we'd ever had a cgi character that Very emoted true. and performed yeah you know with jar jar banks this is the first time we got true you know for for 1999 standards uh, photo accurate sort of digital backgrounds. Yeah. And w- so we have to cut it some slack, but the over reliance of CGI, if you now watch the star Wars prequels on 4k and God help you, if you're watching the star Wars prequels, other than <laughs> right academic criticism. But um, if you watch them in 4k, they look like they're dated now to the point where yeah. it looks like you're watching a reverse Roger Rabbit. You're watching something like Frozen yeah. with CG animation with Ewan McGregor running around throughout yeah. it. It's very, very weird and off-putting. I, and I was afraid of the Lord of the Rings looking like that. And I'm so happy that yeah. it does not. I heard, Someone told me the same thing about 300. If you watch it like on Blu-ray, that it looks terrible than it does like if watching on like a DVD like it's all like it's like that reverse Roger Rabbit, like you were saying. Um, but another movie I wanted to bring up that I just remembered is uh, that Arabian Nights. It's like the prince and the something or other, and it was like three different versions versions of the film. That's another one that's like that uh, uh, Exorcist type thing where they shelve that and then they kind of recut it. Uh, oh my god, it's that prince and something. It was like four other names. Like, do you remember what I'm talking about? It was like animated movie. It, no, it's not. It's not ringing. I mean, there was like a there was animated. Um, no. Was this was this 
like Disney or was it this a was, small, was it somebody it, like, like Don Bluth? Or? It was, I think Don Bluth might've owned it. Oh my God. Arabian cannot spell it. Right. Maybe. Oh, the thief and the cobbler was one name of it. And then it was also known as like four other things. Cause Aladdin keeps coming up. I'm, I'm yeah, Googling here it as is. well. The, the thief and the cobbler. And that's like- what it was. And then it was also called the princess and the cobbler and Arabian night where they did a re-edit of it. And that was Richard Williams who directed it. When is this from? This is literally from uh, 92. They released it in 92, 93, and then 95. So it was the work print 92. Then it was called The Princess and the Cobbler in 93. And then it was called Arabian Night in 95. Whoa, whoa. I'm looking at this right now. On I am on the Internet Movie Database yes. where all good boys and girls go for their information. And I'm seeing... The Thief and the Cobbler, but I'm seeing something else referred to as The Thief and the Cobbler's Miramax cut, yeah. and then The Thief and the Cobbler recobbled cut. Yeah. And so here's my question for you. Are any versions of The Thief and the Cobbler worth watching? I have, you know, I never, I never seen it, but I remember it because it was one of those movies you'd rent. You rent a movie, right? And then you see it, like, uh, and mm-hmm. then you see the uh, advertisement for it, the preview for it, and then like, when is this movie coming out? And then you see it again. Then like, wait, isn't that wasn't that supposed to be out already? And then you see it a third time, and you're like, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> so like, I never fully saw it, but it was, you know, it was just one of those movies that like we're talking about the Exorcist thing that this happened to it. It was literally made in the, I think it was made like a like in the '60s or even like or something. What was it? It was. Originally conceived in the 60s, and then it was made in 89, and the budget for that was like $28 million, and it only made like close to $700,000 in the box office. That's how ridiculous it was. Wow. And it's got Vincent Price, yeah. Matthew Broderick, Jennifer Beals, yeah. Clive Revel. I mean, it's a it, Donald Pleasance. It's a, there's a nice little mix of people here, yeah. and you know, I, I see where a Matthew Broderick might have been a bigger deal at the time. You know, in the late eighties, yep, yep. early nineties. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a very interesting movie. I, I I think I haven't again I haven't come across it to watch it yet, but I feel like I should finally and take the plunge. But go. Let's go back to you real quick and your story about being. A little kid and your dad reading you serial version. Well, reading you Lord of the Rings as a serial. Now, when did you start? Did you start writing after that, or did you start writing? You know, at, uh, when you were little, or did you start writing like closer to high school? When did you start that bug? I started drawing comic books like when I was really, really young. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, you know, probably four three or four and you know i mean they were even at a young age i was displaying ocd in the way that i would you know take the the pieces of paper and yeah. then knew to fold them this way and staple them down the middle you know so that it was you know comic book shaped yeah. rather than um you know stapling it on the outside when you mm-hmm. were done and i i was drawing comic books and asking my parents how you spelled words and you know then writing in my dialogue which mm-hmm. you know was largely consisting of no and help and stop but you know it it, i got very very interested in trying to you know um you know graphically tell stories yeah and um 
illustrate in that way. And I, it, it, I got a, a typewriter when I was very young. I started trying to write scripts when I was like in the third grade. Oh, yeah? And um, awesome. just one of those things that I always sort of assumed I was going to do. And yeah. so I, I came up always, you know, in the creative writing uh, classes or, or camps that mm-hmm. they would offer, you know, during summer break or whatever. And I, you know, I was always involved in school plays and then theater and I was always involved in whatever, you know, sort of was happening with music or, mm-hmm. you know, I was just one of those guys at school. Yeah. That um, if it was creative, I, I couldn't give a fuck about, you know, reading The Great Gatsby mm-hmm. for English class. And it, it frustrated my my teachers so much because they were like, this guy can write. And when he writes essays, um, when you put a gun to his head and say, you have to do this, um, you know, he writes these really good essays. Yeah. And knows how to, you know, but but I was also at the same time, you know, in a garage band and riding a skateboard and just, you know, discovering punk and, and wanting to tell all my teachers to fuck off. So, you know, I would write these essays about 1984 where they were thinly veiled um, critiques of the teacher, yeah. um, him or herself. Yeah. And, you know, so I got this I, I just I got this chip on my shoulder and yet wanted to tell stories and mm. just sort of provoke and piss people off. And um it's obviously uh, led me to uh, a series of failed romantic relationships. Um, but other than that, it's been good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> did you, when you were younger too, when you were writing those comic books, did you have like a certain character you had and you had like a, like a bunch of issues of them? Or did you like make new ones up every time you made a comic book? Like I ask. It was, you know, it was kind of a mix or I'd, I'd sort of tell the stories that I really wanted to see. I was a yeah. huge Spider-Man fan when I was a kid, but I was also a huge Dracula fan. Okay. Um, and, you know, I wanted to watch every Dracula movie I could. And I actually fought the, the media teacher because I insisted on being allowed to check Dracula out when I was in second grade. Mm-hmm. And she said it would be above my head. And so I, like, you know, went to the principal about it and raised hell because I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm an asshole. And uh, but I got to, to check out Dracula and that informed my masterpiece, Spider-Man versus Dracula. Whoa. So All right. It was, Absolutely. Sometimes it's worth trying to bring down the entire education system if it results in uh, fan fiction involving mm-hmm. two characters from uh, separate uh, literary estates. Hey, you know what? There could be a comic book one day called Spider-Man vs. Dracula, and you would I would double check if you have that paper or uh, you know that writing, if you have it, just in case, so you can sue them. Uh, yeah you know this is i mean this is marvel we're talking about and they could put out the worst spider-man versus dracula movie and it would still make a billion dollars that's true so i i really shouldn't be giving away any of these terrible ideas i have just just all of my terrible ideas are worth billions of dollars i mean they're (laughs) absolutely better than most of what's out there gold mine gold mine every day you know just uh terrible ideas that turn to billion dollar ideas and that's that's uh the way the world works <laughs> exactly it's yeah. all about knowing your audience and yeah. saying okay here's the real stupid thing i came up with <laughs> and this is probably the one that's going to make the most amount of money because yeah. i mean hey let's let's face it yeah i'm an independent filmmaker and when you're working on the independent level mm-hmm. if you try to make something that is serious um you're probably going to be less successful than if you make something that is you know, kind of dumb and schlocky and just because that's what people gravitate more toward. I was dumb, at, schlocky because ah, it's, it's 
junk food, junk food entertainment, you know? So uh, that's interesting. I never really, I mean, be, I mean, in, in the independent artists, like, you know, people want to be taken seriously too. So how do you, how do you then make it an independent artist or how do you make an indie movie that's serious where people can take you serious instead of having that junk food then? Because I mean, look at, well, I mean, but you know, I'm not I'm not on a high horse or anything yeah. because I'm just I, asking. I fucking yeah. love a cheeseburger sometimes, you know. Yeah. I, I love a cheeseburger from the drive-through. And you know, fast food is is great. Fast yeah. food is awesome. It's just that, you know, it there's more to life than fast food. And if you just have too much fast food, you're gonna get fat and stupid. Yeah. And so, you know, you need to, to vary your 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 diet a little bit and that extends also to the sort of things you read and you watch the things you put into your mind mm -hmm. instead of just your stomach um but it's tough because you know it the, the 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 simple fact of the matter is that here in the united states we do not want to watch um movies number one that come from foreign lands when it comes to entertainment, uh, the United States has historically been very, very xenophobic. We don't want anything with subtitles because we don't want to read. We don't want it if it's black and white. We don't want it if people are, you know, driving in the, what we perceive as being the wrong side of the car on the wrong side yeah. of the road and paying currency that we don't recognize. Yeah. We have this terrible, terrible habit of saying there is something really successful overseas, so we're just going to remake it. And Andrew. so that's why you end up with a version of the girl with the dragon tattoo that's made by David Fincher of all people. And you're like, I never need to watch this fucking movie because why does this movie even exist? That the other one is fine. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> and um, there's three made for so, it. <laughs> so, but overseas, they yeah. take everything. Mm. They take everything. And they don't care if a movie has a movie star. Yeah. They don't care if it's an art house film. They're, they're so much more open-minded about independent cinema mm -hmm. and just cinema in general. Yeah. And, you know, the two features that I've directed have made more money overseas oh, wow. than they have domestically. Yeah. It's crazy like that. But th the thing is that here, we, number one, want things that are made here. Yeah. And number two, we want movie stars mm -hmm. or people that we recognize from the CW or, yeah. you know, somebody that it makes us feel safe if we go. Steve Carell is going to star in this film because I love The Office and Steve yeah. Carell is so funny and Anchorman. And, you know, people feel safe and like it's a it's a it's it's a good investment that they can make that is going to yield a return mm -hmm. uh, versus here's the exact same movie. With a, starring a guy who's funnier than Steve Carell, yeah. but they've never heard of who this guy is. And even if it's the exact same premise, will not watch it. Yeah. Um, and so as such, oh. what you tend to see with independent, a lot of independent filmmakers is yeah, it's yeah. like, there's two directions. Either I'm going to go the film festival circuit, um, and I'm going to try to really make a serious, you know, O-Tour name for myself and try to get, you know, IFC to recognize me and, you know, be on the next Project Greenlight or whatever else. And then you've got the other independent filmmakers who are going, okay, look, if I'm going to put money into this thing, it's got to yield some kind of an investment, mm. particularly if I have investors. So what is the biggest ant lose? And that is horror. Yeah. Horror is the one genre 
beyond porn, porn being, you know, the very bottom of the rung in terms of, you know, what, how the industry views the, the creation of entertainment. Porn is the only other genre than horror where we don't need name actors. We don't need stars to be yeah. in them. We don't even need a budget. We don't need many sets. We just need to say the money is being spent on the things that we have to have, mm-hmm. which are uh, the tease and then the money shot. Yeah. As long as that's there, then you got us and we are going to be titillated by what it is we are watching right now. So you have people that make horror films. That's true. And there are a lot um, of people in Vegas that make horror know, films. So it's like, which, which way do you want to go with it? And my first one was more of an art house film. Yeah. And then my second one was a horror film. And I love them both and mm-hmm. did creative things with both of them. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the reality is the second one is the one that got me attention. Gotcha. Was that, um, was that butterfly kisses? Butterfly Kisses, yes. Now, question also for you, too. When did you become, were you a film critic first, or were you, like, you know, a director, editor, writer, actor, those things first, before you went to film critique? They they were both happening somewhat simultaneously. I mean, I, I if you really want to trace the lineage, I was making... Um, you know, terrible Tarantino ripoffs when I was in high school with yeah. my friends. Um, I didn't start writing until the advent of the internet, you know, maybe a decade later. Mm. But I mean, I was always writing something. Mm. I was always, you know, writing for, like I said, trying to get into zines yeah. and writing screenplays and teaching myself from, you know, Paul Schrader scripts. Yeah. Um, long before I met Paul Schrader, I was studying Taxi Driver to learn format and how you lay these things out. So I was always writing. And yet at the same time, I was, you know, I went to college late because I was trying to work on film crews here in Baltimore, or I was trying to get on the stage set for plays that were being done so that I could run the lights on this show and paint Castle Dracula on another show. And, um, you know, it was, it was just sort of working my, my way up the ranks and very consciously deciding there's going to be filmmaker Eric Christopher Myers, mm. and he's going to be over here sort of, you know, moving in these circles, but then there's going to be, I'm a writer. Yeah. So there's going to be Eric trying to, you know, make friends and get onto to websites and things like that, writing about star Wars or Lord of the Rings or a nightmare on Elm street or whatever. Yeah. And so I was sort of playing both sides at the same time. Gotcha. So then when did you write, I think it's all correctly roulette. And that's from 2000. That was from 2012. So when did you write roulette? Okay. Then? You just yeah. jogged. So the interesting story about roulette yeah. that I don't tell very often. And um, I don't want to name any names, but there was, there was a screenplay that I wrote mm-hmm. that I loved very much. And it was designed to be my, my, you know, big budget, uh, you know, micro indie. And, yeah. and so a million dollar movie or something that I would get Miramax to pick me up for, or, um, you know, dimension films or somebody would, you know, put the million dollars out yeah. there and get a couple of genre names in it. And I would, you know, try to become the next Sam Raimi, the next Peter Jackson indie yeah. voice of, the prairie and so at any rate i wrote this script and i got it shopped around hollywood a little bit and there was a very famous person who i very much looked up to who read the script 
and very much liked it. I was hoping that this person would produce the film, sort of take me under their wing. And instead, I was sort of you know, told, well, look, if you're not trying to sell this script, the conversation is more or less over because, you know, this is you're you're a nobody. You won some departmental awards in college yeah. and, you know, whatever. But you've never directed a feature film. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't prove to anybody that you're going to be able to handle anything with money. Yeah. And. I, you know, decided to hang on to the script, which may have been the best or worst decision I've ever made. I don't know. Um, but at any rate, what I did was I pulled what little money I had and I went out and I got some gear and I made my movie Roulette. Mm-hmm. And Roulette was like this busted knuckle, independent, um, Lars von Trier style indie European art house film. Yeah. And I was trying to say, look, you know, I'm a guy who can handle an ensemble cast with a ton of different locations and I can do it for, you know, no money and make it look like, you know, maybe I had a million dollars to do it. Yeah. And it was sort of, you know, in the heartbeat before DSLRs. So I had to use a lot of trickery in order to make it actually look like I shot on 16 millimeter film. Yeah. But I made this thing with a lot of, you know, volunteers from the local colleges and interns that were getting school credit for working on it and a lot of art equipment. And I made roulette and roulette came out in 2013 and I'd worked on a bunch of other things in various capacities, but this was like, you know, my calling card as a writer director. Yeah. And it got some really good regional press, won a couple of awards. Um, But that was sort of the movie I made to say, all right, this, this baby that I've got over here that I refuse to part with I need to start the process of showing people what I can do yeah. with very small budgets and roulettes the first one. And then I moved on to butterfly kisses and so continuing that process, of trying to open doors. Uh, if I may ask also, what was it like? It, it, you were a first time director, first time feature film, micro indie film director. What was it like directing your first feature in that regard? Were you nervous? Were you scared? Uh, shit in your pants. You know what? You know, what lessons did you learn from it? Takeaways and, or, and you know, things that you said, I can't do this. I can do this. So we were talking a little while ago about the Lord of the Rings DVDs and, yeah. you know, the, the dozens of hours of special features and behind the scenes stuff. And I was so influenced by all of that content, which is kind of like, you know, film school primer in a box. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so fascinated by it that when... I made roulette and when I say made it, I mean, it was being made like, you know, overnights, weekends, um, you know, serious run and gun style, but run and gun trying to use cranes and, you know, dollies that were built with PVC and plywood and skateboard wheels. Yeah. You know, we were really trying to make it look like we had something here. Um, And it was, it, it was it was taking forever and by forever i mean you know probably took about four months to shoot but yeah. it was four very very long months of doing a lot of things we'd never done before any of us you know working with the steady cam for the yeah. first time and um you know using real firearms in certain sequences i mean it was it was this huge learning experience and so what i did very early on was i found Uh, a student at Towson University where I had gone to and he was this guy who was really good at making short form documentaries 
And, you know, this is before Facebook really was a thing. This was kind of back in the days of MySpace. We hadn't really learned to promote our art, um, you know, socially online yet. Yeah. And so what I said to this guy, his name is Ethan Meyer, and he now works for House Hunters, and I hope he lends me $5. But, um, <laughs> you know, this, this guy, he was really talented and really cool. And I said, can you follow our production? Can you make documentary content for me? You yeah. know, like everybody will gobble up the Lord of the Rings because it's like, how did we make this epic trilogy with $300 million? Mm. Um, how did I make a feature film with like $3? Yeah, that's great. Would that not be a very interesting and compelling thing? And Ethan began filming and he started releasing these five to 10 minute videos um, that we would put out there, you know, in the early days of MySpace and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was like a movie trailer almost every month. Yeah. So people were sort of following our journey up to the end. And hopefully it was like a, you know, Project Greenlight light sort of thing that would make you want to see what the finished film was. But at the same time, maybe be cheering us along, but also watching us fuck up and fall on our face very yeah. often, which we did. Um. It's really cool to have this series, Luck of the Draw, The Making of Roulette. It's probably still on YouTube right now. Um, but when I watch it, it's like, on the one hand, very cool because I'm going, that was me in my you know, 30s and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something really awesome and important and you know, historical in my life. And seeing that joy that was on my face. Um, but also looking at it and going, God, I was naive as hell. And I did not know exactly what I was getting into. Yeah. Um, because it just becomes more complex, especially you get on to your productions and, you know, it's, it comes a very different experience that sometimes it's good to be able to sort of remember when it felt fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I feel you. I, I mean, it does get sucked out of it. Yeah. I mean, big productions are great, but, the it's it's the small ones that are always a blast and it's the it's the the camaraderie really if you, if you i mean yeah filmmaking is a team sport like i always tell people but there's a camaraderie to making a smaller crew and a cast and you feel like a family and it's always a fun time i feel like when you may have that smaller cast and crew in that regard to that it 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 is um and you know i i made I made friendships shooting that film mm-hmm. that will hopefully last the rest of my life. Yeah. And yet conversely, there are other people um, that I haven't spoken to since. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And, you know, one of them is the fact that when you're making, when you're trying to make a feature film and you're trying to make it for no money and you know, it, it, it just, creates a lot of stress yeah to put it very mildly um it creates a lot of stress and particularly when you 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 can't you know sort of tell people when they need to be on set you're working around their lives because it is a volunteer production yeah um you know you're 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 sort of in a lot of ways you you have to do what other people are willing to work with what they're willing to give you. Yeah. But by that same token, the the counter to that is that since people are giving up their time and they are doing it on a voluntary level to sort of boost their relationship or not their relationship, I'm sorry, to, to boost their career yeah. and their profile in the world. Um, you owe them 
who owe them a film that, you know, number one gets finished. A lot of independent films start, particularly when there's no money and they are never completed. Uh, you owe them to finish it and you owe them to give them something that is representative of what you promised and representative of the energy that they put into it. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of terrible independent films because just because we now have final uh, cut or, um, you know, whatever else installed, pre-installed on a MacBook when you buy it at Best Buy mm-hmm. uh, and you have a, a movie camera on your freaking iPhone. Yeah. They can shoot in 4K. Just because you can make a movie doesn't mean everybody should be. And you see these terrible pieces of garbage that you go, I mean, it, it's not just that I don't like the stories, that they don't understand film school 101. Yeah. You know, how to shoot people in a room talking to one another so that their eye lines go the proper way. Nobody's taught them about the 180 degree rule. It's these yeah. YouTube content creators now. Angry man yelling at cloud. Anyway, <laughs> point is. But you're, but you're, you're, you're totally the- right, though, about that stuff because there's people that, Mike, that I look at, I'm like, they should have made this movie. And I'm like, God bless them for trying, but at the same time, maybe they should not make another one because this was a piece of poop. I'll leave that lightly. <laughs> you know, it's one thing if you go, hey, listen, um, I've never made a movie before, yeah. and all I got is this iPhone and this MacBook. Um, you want to you wanna make something and mm. see if anything comes of it? If that's the scenario, mm. that's one thing. It's another thing when you have people who promise much more than they can deliver. Yeah. And you have these sort of used car salesmen in the uh, the independent world who sort of get away with exploiting either free or cheap talent. Yeah. And by promising something that they cannot possibly deliver and people go in very excited and they show up on set that first day and realize this is not there are no trailers and yeah. you know there there are no huge craft service tables and you know 45 people standing around it's I, like that <laughs> director guy with a DSLR on a tripod um it, you see that happen I've been in that I've been in that situation I like you know they get you jazzed up and then you go to the set and you're like god damn what did I do to myself Oh boy! And then you see the movie itself at the end. If yeah. you see the movie at the end, but if you do see the yeah. movie at the end, it's like you're you're sort of appalled at what it yep. is, and it's because you have these people who talk and they they have ideas and they know how to make you think that they know what they're doing because maybe they did watch all yeah. of those Lord of the Rings documentaries, <laughs> but just because you watched all the documentaries doesn't mean you know how to shoot again two yeah. people sitting in a room talking so that their eye lines are going the proper directions. And even that too, like there's those directors that want to make these movies and then they're like trying to rush your ass, like to get shit done. And it's like, well, we can't really hold, hold up. Like, do you want a good shot or do you want a shitty shot? And it's like, what, what do you want from me? Do you want a movie? Do you are, like, do you just want it for the money or do you want it for the actual enjoyment of people's like, you know, watching experience again this kind of goes back to what you said how in foreign film like foreign countries they just enjoy they enjoy the movie for the experience it sounds like and they really just uh you know leave that uh they really escape from reality and they go okay whatever movie this is i'm going to enjoy it i'm here to escape from all my problems for that two hours whatever it is but in america it's like i better have a two-hour movie that's fucking phenomenal and i'm gonna be really upset if it wasn't that's basically, I mean, if that's 
if I'm saying this correctly, from what you were saying. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just tough. I mean, you 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 have to deliver the people. And I think even if you've got $300 million to make Lord of the Rings, you still need to deliver a product yeah. that, you know, you have, you, you have people you have to make happy at the end of the oh, day. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, one of those, those people that has to be happy is yourself. If you're the person who's sort of carrying the vision around your head, um, sometimes you have to say, no, that wasn't good enough. We need to do it again. Mm-hmm. Or, um, Whatever that might be, sometimes you have to be. Sometimes you have to be the least liked person on set, yeah. and that's you know. I I realize that's that's you know a, a really shitty thing to to say because you know it makes it sound like oh boo hoo the poor director, and I I don't think I've ever met any directors who have ever felt lost on their own sets, um just completely cut off from everybody. I know it's happened. There have been some you know, very famous examples of, you know, directors that the crew was basically ready to mute me from Star Wars, you know, was one of them. Jaws. Lucas, nobody understood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like everyone's looking at the director like they're a fucking asshole. Yeah. And nobody respects that individual. I don't know anyone personally that's ever gone through that. Yeah. Of course, none of us have ever directed Star Wars or Jaws. Um, but, you know, there there can be moments where there is a camaraderie that is formed between the people who are in the trenches, Mm -hmm. but you're in a lot of cases, the person who's telling people to go into the trenches and watching the work. Um, So, you know, I try to be as involved as possible whenever on set and let people know, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. Um, I'm always the person who goes to the food last, you know, like everybody, you know, everybody take care of yourselves but there are times I'm going to have to go. The fucking sun is going down. You need to do it again. And you need to do it the right way. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally understandable. And after you made roulette, when did you start getting the idea for butterfly kisses? Um, so roulette came out in October of 2013. Yep. And I, you know, spent about a year trying to go out there and do interviews and, you know, just push it for all it was worth. It mm-hmm. got a European release. And, you know, so I had about a year to go out and, you know, just sort of talk about the film. And once October of the next year rolled around, I'm going, okay, well, you know, this movie's kind of done now. I really need to start thinking, you know, I need to start thinking pretty seriously about what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, it was, it was the, the, the academic in me was sort of, I guess, activated as I was taking a walk one evening and I started thinking about some movie I had just seen a movie trailer for. I, I think it was, it was either like the last exorcism or it was paranormal activity two or three or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And I was thinking about found footage and I was thinking about found footage as a genre and I'm going, okay, this this, there was this incredible moment in 1999 where the Blair Witch Project came out. And yeah. while the Blair Witch Project was not the first found footage film to ever be released, it was the one that popularized it and, uh, you know, sort of created the template for which we now know all films of that genre that have followed. And it's not strictly limited to horror. It's not just the paranormal activity movies or whatever. You've also got movies like Cloverfield that yep. are sci-fi Chronicle. or um, Chronicle. Yeah. The superhero one you have, you know, you know, you've always had mockumentaries. So there's the comic angle on that. 
But I started thinking about specifically when the Blair Witch Project came out and I was like, you know, that was so shrewd of Artisan when they released it because no one had ever seen in mainstream cinema a film that looked like this. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, essentially a fake documentary. We yeah. all seen documentaries, but a fake documentary that is complete and total fiction, but is passing itself off as being real. And now they're utilizing, you know, again, that early Wild West version of the internet in relation to like fan websites and, and places where you had spy reports and scoops and yeah. where you went for all of your gossip. Um, Dark Horizons and, and Bloody Disgusting and Ain't It Cool News and all of these, you know, pioneering places, Chud. Yeah. And, you know, how they, Artisan, you know, utilized Sci-Fi Channel to make this little documentary about the, the story behind the Blair Witch Project, put the Blair Witch Project out there with very little background, not really advertising the fact that there are stars in this movie. Mm-hmm. more advertising the sort of, you know, quasi documentary nature of it. Yeah. And then used the website that they created to essentially play a hoax, pretend that the people were really missing and that this really happened. It was brilliant. It, it was, was absolutely yeah. a brilliant multimedia experiment. And people, I, I live in Maryland. So yeah. there are still people who are convinced that the Blair Witch Project is, you know, it's a it's a pretend movie, but it's a pretend movie about a real legend. And it's not. Yeah. It's not even a little bit. And so I started thinking about that and I started going, could that ever happen again? Yeah. Our film came out and somebody said, this is real. Yeah. And that people looked at it and saw something that was, you know, objectively real and yet the content contained within the narrative was so extraordinary that people would look at it and go, there's no way this is real. This has got to be pretend. Um, That person must be an actor. That person must be an actor. This was all hoax. You can see the wires and everything. Mm. Would it ever be able to happen again? Uh, You know, would people ever fall for it? People would go, oh, come on. This is just like the Blair Witch Project. This is a total hoax. By that same token, we are seeing so-called reality television um, that we know is scripted that we know is edited to create certain drama and tension and and sequences that did not happen the day that they filmed it. We know that certain documentaries can't be trusted and certain documentary filmmakers bring their bias to the table and are willing to, you know, be, you know, not necessarily be bipartisan in the way that they edit. Yeah. So people are by that, you know, by that same, you know, stretch, they are watching things that they think is real and it's not. And I just started thinking about all of these things and the idea of butterfly kisses came to me, which was I'm going to shoot something that looks like found footage. I'm going to put on the academic hat. I'm going to make a checklist of everything that you see in found footage, all the tropes. It's got to be the story of the, you know, death or disappearance of amateur filmmakers who are investigating an alleged supernatural incident. Mm. And it's got to hit all the things that we see coming. Yeah. And then I want to build a real documentary around it uh, filled with real people playing themselves. Yeah. Deconstructing this footage and whether or not what I've filmed is real and why it's fake or why it's real. Mm. 
And so essentially kind of do a backwards Blair Witch Project yeah. and make a movie that it's saying, no, that found footage that, that, you know, is the source of this film that we're talking about and showing you. It's probably 99% bullshit. Yeah. But we are telling you so because we are real people in a real documentary about this footage. Yeah. In reality, that's not the case. It's all scripted. So uh, um, it became this big meta experiment that I did. And it was a hell of a lot of fun. When I saw the trailer, I won't lie, I probably for a good 20 or 30 minutes, I was like, is this real? I literally was, I was like trying to figure it out. I was reading comments. I was looking up. I was, I was like, I literally thought it was a real dot, like a real like documentary for a second. I was like, this is fucking good. So thank you. you I mean, sir, the trailer was something that I fought. Yeah. Everyone on. I didn't want to cut a trailer oh, because yeah. when this movie was done, when I, when I had it finished and I began shopping it to distributors, mm-hmm. um, I, I took it to various film festivals and it, it spent about a year before the movie came out, it did a year of film festivals all mm. throughout the United States and it played Canada and it played overseas. Yeah. Um, but it did very, very well. And it connected with a lot of people and it built a really strong buzz. Yeah. Which was exactly what I had hoped. So that when it came out, it would already have, you know, great reviews, you know, from critics who were like, I'm not going to spoil whether it's real or not. I'm yeah. just going to tell you it's awesome or I didn't like it or whatever my opinion is. And it, so it was basically showing up at festivals. Um, a lot of people never heard of it or people were like, oh, my God, I read about this. I can't wait to see it. And we had no trailer on the website. Mm-hmm. This very ambiguous looking, you know, piece of cover art, um, yeah. you know, of, of a hand, you know, two hands holding a photograph of people whose faces have been blurred out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are just sitting down and the movie starts and it's like, oh, this is like a you know, a Blair Witch or a paranormal activity or whatever else until suddenly real people start showing up on screen. Yeah. On the screen, you know, people that you can grab your phone and please don't be that person, (laughs) but you can (laughs) grab your phone and you can Google their name and they start popping up and they are who they say they are. And I, you know, I would watch people just sitting there through the whole 90 minutes being like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And, you know, when I get up to do a Q&A afterwards, you know, the first question is all, wait, okay, so lay it out for us. How much of that is real and how much of it is not? Yeah. I just love watching people trying to figure that out. Yeah. And you know, what, you know what, too, like, I feel like the found footage, uh, you know, genre is a hard one to pull off as well. And you, you mean, I know you said you checked off all the boxes for a found footage movie, but did you, was in the back of your mind saying like, okay, I got like it. Was it hard for you also to like think about it? And uh, I'm gonna put this question. I'm trying. Sorry, I apologize. Did you feel that this could fail easily? I guess as a as a found footage movie with you know, I mean, in general, because again, found footage movies I feel like are always hit or misses in a general sense. Like again, Blair Witch hits perfectly. You know, your movie hits really well too, especially from that. I saw with the trailer and shit like that. But like other ones, you know, you can tell paranormal activity, you can tell it's fake, you know, you can tell all that other shit. Um, what's another, what's another found footage movie? Like those, those type of movies, you know, hit or miss. Sure. And I mean, you know, found footage, you know, some of it's better than others. Yeah. You know, a lot of people love the Hell House LLC series mm-hmm. and, you know, you got the VHS series and Wreck yeah. and, you know, it's, it's never been a, it's never been a, a particular, um, genre that yeah. i've been a 
obsessively drawn toward, to mm. be honest. And, you know, people are like, what are your favorite found footage movies? And I'm like, I mean, I've seen them. Yeah. I, I like this one and I like that one, but I probably more interested honestly in mockumentaries yeah like spinal tap is one of my favorite films of all great, time but i love movie. all those for guest films mm. um i love documentary films I, I i feel that Werner herzog is a genius but i also love shit like you know capturing the freedmen's and mm. metallica some kind of monster american movie yeah. you know there's so many fantastic documentaries and so what i wanted to do and why i thought this was such a fun movie to make was you know it's it's like it was like two productions basically yeah and i shot this found footage movie where i filled it with actors they were all actors for the most part from stage okay. anybody that had done um anything on screen had been very minor appearances and that mm -hmm. was by design i didn't want anybody recognizable because yeah. I mean, I don't have Matt Damon or Ben Affleck in one of my films, but you know, if you watch Roulette, there, there's a guy who did a series of national spots for um, AT and T, and he's one of the stars. You maybe you saw him. Yeah. There's another guy who did a series of nat national spots. He was Thomas Edison in the Chick Fil A commercials. <laughs> um, you know, another person who was in a Kesha video. I mean, oh, nice. you yeah. might recognize him, you might not. Yeah. But so in Butterfly Kisses, for the found footage, I wanted to make sure that there was nobody recognizable yeah. at all. And then when, you know, I make this documentary that we keep cutting back to, that's deconstructing the found footage, the found yeah. footage, which, again, can feel a little bit hokey. Mm -hmm. And that's OK if it feels a little bit hokey for yeah. you. It's like a mashup of greatest his hits. Even the monster is kind of a mashup of greatest hits. And so that it feels like it's checking all these boxes and that I'm doing things that you see in every found footage movie, but also things that annoy you in every found footage movie, mm. things that make no sense in every found footage movie, things that you see coming a mile away in every found footage movie. Yeah. The hard part then was making this documentary around it mm -hmm. where I said, okay, the shooting style has to be very different. Mm. It's got to feel much more polished. Um, because it's ostensibly a different crew making yeah. it. My crew making this now. And it, it's full meta. I'm in my own movie yeah. as the director of the documentary you are watching. So, you know, I'm I'm popping in. My crew is in there playing themselves. All of the experts that we're going and talking to, one of whom is Eduardo Sanchez, the co-director of The Blair Witch Project, sits on camera and basically rips this found footage to shreds. Um we've got, you know, scenes at, at, at local radio stations and scenes with a real paranormal investigative group. Yeah. And, you know, a guy who's an editor on finding Bigfoot analyzing the special effects yeah. or what he thinks are special effects in the footage. We got all these real people playing themselves yeah. and, you know, with one linchpin actor who's sort of navigating and, you know, helping everybody along the problem, the thing that, that seemed like it was most likely to fail if I fucked up, having a bunch of real people playing themselves who'd never acted before. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, um, you know, David Starrett, who's this famous film critic, can you sit here on camera and, you know, tell me all this esoteric film knowledge and jargon. But if I now ask you to interact with an actor and perform playing yourself, can you do it and make it look believable? Mm -hmm. 
And so the lead actor in this movie is a guy named Seth Kallick that I've known for about 20 years. And he's fantastic because he's sort of, along with me, we coaxed performances out of non-actors. Yeah. And um, if, you know, if that had not happened, none of the film would have worked. It wouldn't have worked at all. Now, did you film like the found footage? Pro- I'm, I'm guessing, I'm going to assume here. For a second, that you filmed the found footage part first, right? Now, did you go right right into the production of the documentary, or did you kind of like wait a little bit to give it some breath and then do the documentary part of it? Um, I did the latter, and part of it was, and when I say breath, I mean we started filming the found footage at the very beginning of the year, mm. uh, you know, dead of January or February, yeah. and we shot until like the end of March. And then came back in June to start filming the stuff that is supposed to be taking in current day. And part of the reason for that was that I wanted to get all of the found footage assembled and mm-hmm. see what I had. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking like in its first cut, it was like an hour and 15 minutes. And I'm going, shit, you know, this whole movie's got to be no more than 90 minutes. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to manage. And what I ended up with in a first assembly was, I mean, Butterfly Kisses was three hours in its first cut. And so I spent about a year trimming it down to 90 minutes and it was. How how tough was that? that? How tough was that cutting the three hours down to uh, 90 minutes? It was, it was, it taught me so much about editing. Mm -hmm. It taught me so much about writing. Um, and how you can write in post-production. Yeah. But it was, it was heartbreaking. I mean, it was like, you know, they talk about killing your darlings and it was just like, I'm just like murdering babies all over (laughs) the place here. And it was, it was a really tough thing to do. I had my very first test screening. I never had a test screening before where Mm -hmm. people were pulled in off the street and allowed to watch an unfinished version of a movie. Yeah. It had like temp special effects. It had temp music. It hadn't been color graded. And basically you're showing somebody, you know, somebody who maybe has never watched a rough cut of anything. Mm-hmm. You're showing that to them. And then you're saying, okay, here is your comment card. And it's got a number of questions and places where we want you to score things. But we're also going to have a focus group afterwards and talk about it. And what we want to hear from you is everything you don't like. Yeah. And so you're sitting there feeling very naked because you're showing somebody, you know, you're, yeah. it's like dropping trow in front of a room <laughs> and saying, I didn't even manscape first, you know, um, Here I am, I'm, I'm not, I'm not looking my best right now. And then you're like, tell me everything that's wrong with it. Yeah. And in my case, you know, I like shaved my beard and kind of stood in the back of the room trying to look real inconspicuous, but you know, it was, it was brutal. And yeah. I had a lot of scotch afterwards but it made the movie so much better. Yeah. And, um, and it was an amazing thing, but in, in answer to your original question, I mean, I, I waited something like three months to come mm-hmm. back and do the, the documentary stuff. And part of that was that because the found footage is supposed to be a decade old at this point, yeah. I wanted to be able to revisit some of the same places that you saw, like, you know, with dead trees or snowfall or whatever, and see those same places in this sort of lush, vibrant, yeah. green explosion of summer weather. And to be able to, you know, maybe subconsciously your mind reads it and goes, this is a different time period. It looks different. Mm-hmm. I can buy that 10 years has passed. Now for the found footage part, did, what kind of camera did you use? Like, um, if it's 10 years, 2018, 2008, 
Like, what were you using? Like, made DV tapes for that found footage part, or were you using DSLRs? You know, those type of camp, more modern equipment, and make it in post production. You know, older vintage. It was it was heartbreaking because I wanted to shoot um, mini DV at you know thirty p. Yeah, or you know whatever whatever the old standard was. It was but it was thirty frames per second, mm-hmm. and had that incredibly slick. Um, terrible look that video cameras had until until 24p happened with the Panasonic DVX. Oh, I love that camera! <laughs> and y- yes, and it was it was fantastic. And yeah. so you know, we actually put the I, no, I think it was the Canon XL2 that did it first. Oh, did it? But the yeah. DVX was such a great camera that we made that the camera in the found footage is being used to film with. And so we see that camera on several occasions and it was the real vintage thing, but alas, and forsooth, we had to shoot in a higher um, quality image and then use post-production to degrade it because it's something that happened that a distributor came along and went, well, we really like it, but you know, we want that image part, the found footage stuff to look a little bit better for idiots in their 4k TVs. Yeah. I needed something that I could back off, you know, yeah. the degradation on and it, but it broke my heart because I really wanted to make it look like that. Oh, that's upsetting. I hate, I hate idiots with their 4k TVs actually. <laughs> and I'm speaking about my friend I Mark. Love, <laughs> I love my 4k TV. It's wonderful. <laughs> but um, I also have sitting here next to me, I got a VCR and yeah. a tube TV. So it sort of depends on what you're watching and what you're into. I'm 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 just speaking to my friend my friend I'm just shouting out to my friend Mark who is a big 4K HDR dude who who's big on that shit so I just wanted to uh, shine him on that for a second I apologize so Mark if you're listening which you probably are because oh. you're doing the audio Merry Christmas <laughs> um, Mark um, watch <laughs> the Lord of the Rings and let me know if you're a big nerd about 4K and HDR which I love, I totally love. Maybe you can uh, find me on Facebook or hit me up somewhere on the social medias and explain what setting I have on my expensive TV um, that is causing the image to want to, uh, when when light is lowering in the visual that's on the television, the TV screen wants to compensate and dim its bulb but it's doing so in places I don't want it to in the film. Mm. What the fuck setting do I need to change? Well, please. He will tell you because he works at geek squad and bam, there you go. I have, I have, I will, I will get on the horn with him after this conversation today and I will tell him to message you. So that is as a gift, I guess for you. Listen, (laughs) this just chewing the fat with you right now is a gift to me. I appreciate the icing on the cake though. Thank you very much. It is a gift. To me, that I'm chewing the fat with you, so I one up you, sir. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I agree, and um, I guess this is a gift for both of us because that's why this moment is called the present. <laughs> exactly. Touche. Touche. So <laughs> I now need to drink something very strong and uh, pretend I never said that. <laughs> it's all good. So. Uh, Butterfly Kisses comes out. So, what is the next thing post Butterfly Kisses for you now? So it's really interesting because um, did you hear about the um, the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, I heard about the thing. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's this thing called COVID. Yeah. And it fucking sucks because it's like, if you were paying any attention during your, um, you know, ancient history classes in college when they were teaching about the mini ice age that happened mm-hmm. in the, I want to say the 14th century, it was right around Braveheart. There was this mini ice age during which time the temperature dropped just a few degrees. Yeah. But it, it just across the board dropped a few degrees. And it was something like a hundred years that this happened. And as a consequence, everything got fucked up. The yeah. entire like, you know, ecosphere got completely screwed up. Um, you know, that affects harvests and crops and it, it affects livestock. It affected, you know, if, if, Know, babies were born in snow and didn't have shelter. I mean, it totally fucked the world up for about yeah. 100 years. So COVID is kind of like our mini ice age right now in that it's not, you know, we're not experiencing the stand. Mm. You know, there's, it, it, we're not watching nine out of 10 people dropping dead in the middle of the street. And then there's like a you know dark stranger from, you know, beyond the veil. who's Captain Trips, isn't that the, the, the uh, name? Randall Flag. Well, okay. um, Cap- Randall Flag. Captain Trips was the uh, the name of the virus, right? Yes. Yeah. And if you're a bad guy, you go to Las Vegas, and if you're a good guy, you go to Boulder, Colorado. Well, I guess I'm a bad guy. Yeah, I know. It's like it's it, for me. It's the Christianity yeah. part that's kind of the the, the breakaway because I'm going. You know, maybe there's a God. I'm an atheist, but maybe there's <laughs> a God, and I'm going to be proved wrong by this whole end of the world scenario. But I'm not going to a religious commune. That's a problem for me. Um, yeah. I'm not following self-appointed uh, cult leaders. Um, at any rate, even <laughs> if they are Whoopi Goldberg yeah. or, or Ruby D or whoever played her in the original. So basically we're looking at a mini ice age right now yeah. in that we're watching a lot of, you know, like small businesses close. We're watching a lot of um, things on sort of a, a micro scale, but, you know, we're also watching the sort of, impending death of the theatrical experience as movie chains are closing yeah, down. Which actually I was going to ask you about as well, too. <laughs> That's funny that you, wow, you were just reading my th- thoughts here. That is what I'm doing, sir, because we are simpatico. It's, <laughs> it's, we're watching all of this shit just sort of slowly freezing mm-hmm. and it's changing cinema. Yeah. We were already watching the, the sort of, you know, oncoming death of physical media as streaming fuck you netflix um, yes as streaming has sort of taken over we have all these different platforms now and content is being released directly to streaming Mm -hmm. in a way that it never was there are certain shows and certain movies you will probably never have on physical media if you are a nerdy collector like myself and it's gonna piss you off To be able to say, for example, I have everything that is Star Wars on physical media, except for like, you know, the Mandalorian. That's one show they're never going to put out on physical media. You don't think so? You don't think they're going to do that? I mean, I don't. It's tough because they're going to be, you know, putting out all these other shows now. They put out Titans on physical media. I know it's not Disney, but still they put Titans out on. uh, And even Perry Mason is on physical media. I think we can agree, though, that what DC is putting out is nowhere near as far reaching um, and commercially successful as what Disney is doing with The Mandalorian. That's very true. Too. And they say the only way you could watch this show is to pay for this monthly streaming service. Yeah. 
are going to continue to barrage you with new content. There's no, there's no reason yeah. to put it out on Blu-ray or Ultra yeah. 4K or whatever you want to have. Good point. So, um, it's it. I, I really think that it's going to be sort of a niche thing that is aimed toward collectors, mm-hmm. um, like myself, yep. and you know, people that need to own that thing. The same seems to be kind of like where movie theaters are going to be going mm-hmm. in that. You know, they they have pushed everything back to 2021 yeah. and Tenet was supposed to be the movie that got people back into movie theaters. Yeah. And it didn't. And they're already trying their hand. The Wonder Woman doesn't come out until, you know, comes out Christmas Friday. Yeah. It's it's been released overseas in some markets and yeah. it's not making any money. Yeah. So you're seeing DC and Warner brothers sort of hedging their bets and saying this movie, we are going to, you know, do a joint release. You either can watch it on HBO or you can go to the movie theater. And it's automatically sort of like saying we're admitting defeat. We're putting it out in the movie theater as sort of like a obligatory thing. Yeah. But they're knowing that streaming is where the revenue is going to be. And it's why Marvel, for example, is announcing all its new characters and stuff. But you'll note that it's not announcing new movies. They are the movies are kind of nebulous now. It's now about the TV shows that they're going to be doing. Star Wars is all about TV shows. Everything is turning into streaming right now. Yeah. So. In answer to your question, what am I doing right now? I'm falling into that mini ice age area of like the small business guy, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, how do you make a movie when, you know, it's a socially, you know, reliant activity, but independent films, you know, you don't have money to have a nurse on set, you know, and to have somebody who is, you know, making sure that certain social distancing is being enforced and you don't have that liability coverage. It's a weird time right now. It's like, who's got money to invest in an independent film? Um, It's a very, very weird time, especially with numbers spiking in a lot of areas. Even even too, like, you know, you're saying who would invest in an independent film also, like, People are going to be starting to be starved, I feel like, for content as well too soon. So they need to invest in independent cinema as well in that regard. Would, would you say or n- no? I, I agree with you halfway. And mm. I agree with you in this act. I, I saw Butterfly Kisses come out October of 2018 yeah. and do phenomenally well. Um, it got me so much coverage, so much exposure. It was great. And this, you know, after a year of touring festivals, almost to the to the week, now it was like a year of podcasts and interviews and media yeah. coverage and stuff like that. You know, not like I'm, you know, Christopher Nolan, but on my own scale, on my own level, yeah. it was it was a lot of talking to a lot of people. Um, you know, instead of having to drum up reviews from reputable film critics, you know, it's like, here's, you know, 15 more today. And they just keep it's self perpetuating. It's been a great thing, but you reach that year point, you know, like October, 2019 comes around and the movie is kind of getting quiet and it's like, okay, well now I've got to find what my next film is going to be. Yeah. So I sat down and I wrote my next script and now it's like, I got two movies in my pocket. I got that dream baby that I did not, a couple years ago and that's the one I need like a million bucks for so I'm still holding on to that 
kind of wrote something that was a little bit smaller and could be done, you know, sort of, you know, in the mid-Atlantic region. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be what I do next as I'm still chasing after that bigger one. Yeah. And then COVID happens. And the funny thing is people, you know, sort of burned through all of their popular mainstream stuff on Disney Plus or Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. And they became so hungry for content when Redbox has the same fucking movies it's had since February in it. Um, People start going on Prime or on Shutter and looking for these movies they've never seen mm-hmm. before. And then all of a sudden, Butterfly Kisses like comes back from the dead. Yeah, and all of these people, you know, everyone's watched Tiger King, so we need something else to watch. That's true. It did and come at a perfect time, weirdly enough. Independent filmmakers are seeing this wonderful minute right now mm-hmm. where their work is being reassessed. You know, TikTok resurrected this film called Megan is Missing that is 10 years old and all of a sudden out of nowhere every it began trending on TikTok and Megan is Missing has been for like two weeks one of the most discussed films wow. period of any genre anywhere it's all over social media and it's mm. because this pandemic and that yeah. we now have new ways to talk to one another like you and I are right now mm. so the important thing I think is that indie filmmakers don't need a hundred million dollars to do a movie. Yeah. Um, indie filmmakers have, you know, been making films for nothing for decades and we're still going to be scuttling around like cockroaches when you can't, you know, guarantee that a wonder woman or a Christopher Nolan film is something that costs in excess of 200 million bucks is going to turn any kind of a profit. Yeah. These cheaper movies, people are watching them and they cost nothing to make. So, you know, my fingers are crossed. I'm knocking on wood. Um, you know, the filmmaker in me is fascinating to see what happens next. Mm. The, the film critic and writer, you know, is, is very fascinated to see what happens next. And I am doing a social media experiment right now um, where I am essentially filming a movie at home against the the backdrop of the pandemic. And I'm doing it with my son. It's just turning into something that my eight year old kid who's getting really into, you know, how things are produced and made doing it for fun. And we're kind of making a really killer kick-ass movie. And we're just doing it here at home with an iPhone and, you know, my Adobe premiere set up on my computer. That's awesome. Turning into a turning into a really cool movie and it's being made out of nothing and out of most importantly necessity Yeah, being the mother of invention and whatnot. That's, that's incredible. I, I know what I can't wait to see that movie then. (laughs) Yeah, man. If you uh, give me a video version of this interview, you never know because it might have the initials BK two in it. So, um, if you, uh, if you give me a video version of this interview we're doing right now, uh, maybe parts of it might show up. If OBS doesn't act like a fool to me, then I will give that video version to you. Uh, but, that sounds awesome, sir. Yes, 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 yes. But what do you think, going back to the theater experience, what do you think the movie theater experience will be in the next maybe two years, two, three years? But also, I found out today that con- Congress has given like $15 billion to movie theaters, if, I'm, if I read that correctly from a headline. I didn't read read the whole article, but I saw fifteen billion to movie theaters. Um, I I really honestly believe that 
you know, as I said before, the theatrical experience was kind of on its way out mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah. Um, I've got, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in front of 4k TV. Yeah. I have a great sound bar and, um, you know, I can sit here and I can watch something in 4k, whether it's my Lord of the Rings, you know, UHD disc, or it's streaming something yeah. on Disney or Netflix or wherever else. And I can pause it whenever I want to. It sounds fantastic. It looks fantastic. I can shake the whole house if I want to shake the whole house. Um, when you go to the movies now, the movies have become so cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. It's not like just going on a date with, you know, your girlfriend anymore. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very expensive experience. Yeah. Um, sessions are outrageous always have been but it's you know you're looking to if you want to go with your your spouse and kids to go see the new pixar movie or whatever yeah you could be dropping a hundred bucks um just to go to the movie theater question and for yes. you, if i may ask i think i heard this a long time ago and it was one of those rumor mill things that i've heard through the grapevine i always heard like movie theaters the reason why they charge so much for concessions is because that's where they're making the money from the actual movie because a lot of the tickets really go to the to the uh, studios. If I, is that correct or is that incorrect? Was I lied to? It, it no, you're you're absolutely right. And going all the way back, you know, an hour and a half ago to Paul Schrader, mm. something that Paul Schrader told me the day that I hung out with him and I watched his Exorcist prequel. He was talking about the business end of his movie being um, released after it had been shelved. And he said, you know, it's not going to make any movie. It's not going to make any money at all theatrically. That's not where the money is. He said, the way everything is moving. And this is this is 2005 that we were having this conversation. This is 15 years ago. Yeah. He said, money is made in the home video market. It's DVD. And if a movie is being released in the movie theaters, that accomplishes two things at this point in this day and age. The first thing is that it makes it eligible for the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Some filmmakers, that doesn't matter. For some films, that doesn't matter. Friday the 13th is never going to be nominated for an Academy Award. One day. Um, One but day. we can hope, man. We can pray. <laughs> so at, at, at any rate, you know, it's like the, the theatrical experience is um, to make it eligible for the Academy, but also because that exposure in release is a commercial for the DVD mm-hmm. and that's where the money is. So if you start looking at that with everything that you just said yeah. about, you know, where the, the money comes for the concessions. And if you also look at the fact that, you know, George Lucas, for example, with star Wars pre Disney, those movies with the exception of the very first one were not 20th century Fox films. Mm-hmm. 20th Century Fox was the distributor who took those films and put them into all the movie theaters and then made those VHS copies available. And so when you start thinking about where is the money actually going for this theatrical experience, it's the distributor. Yeah. And, you know, the studio is going to reap the profits later on. So, yeah, I mean, it it just people are eyeballing this and going, you know, if I don't have a movie theater that I have to pay, and if I don't have a distributor, I have to pay because I just create my own platform, whether that's plus or it's Peacock or it's, you know, whatever the fuck else. Yeah. Um, I can just release my stuff there 
boom, it's done. Yeah. You know, I don't have to put out any commercials. I don't, it, it, there it is. And I, I think that that's really what's going to do it. You're going to see movie theaters as boutique art houses where you go to see re-releases or films like Paul Thomas Anderson is like my mo- new movie was shot in 70 millimeter and I over my dead body will be released on Netflix yeah. before people see it in 70 millimeter on the big screen. This is really depressing to me because I love movie theaters. I love the experience. I mean, when they opened up, um, when was it? Back in... Shit, well, August, June, September, whenever it was when they reopened it for a hot minute, like I went and see Back to the Future for like $5. Me and my uh, fiance, we went, and it was a great experience. I never saw Back to the Future in theaters, but it was the experience for me was like seeing, hearing other people laugh at other parts that you never laughed at or never really found funny. It's in and hearing the sound design and all that stuff. I know I don't have a sound bar or a surround sound system or anything at home, but it was just something about being in the theaters because, again, like, which I find interesting too is like, you know, they're saying, oh, we're only, uh, you know, only capacity is like, you know, 40%, 30% of in the theater. But that's basically what the theaters are now 30% capacity, unless it's a temple film like a Marvel movie, which it's like those have multiple viewings. And I'm. I hope it's gonna be really depressing when movie theaters die. I'm gonna be really sad. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's like if you if you say Olive Garden is only able to have you know a third capacity, yeah. let's say, and Olive Garden still has to you know pay the electric company. They yeah. still got to pay their their lease. They've still got to uh, pay their staff. And on top of all of that, they've got to lure people in. Yeah. Often, you know, you're seeing a lot of restaurants that are dropping prices or coming up with, you know, new and inventive ways to serve you um, things for cheaper because they know that a lot of people are going to, and this is the important thing, a lot of people after COVID are going to carry this shit around, this PTSD for a very long time. Yeah. There are a lot of people who are going to be really scared to go to a restaurant or to go to a movie theater and sit in a chair that, I mean, come on. Have uh, movie theater chairs are disgusting to begin with because nobody cleans them. Yeah. Now you've got the possibility of dying because you went and sat in one of those chairs. It's it's going to have a lot of people freaked out for a very long time. And restaurants, movie theaters, mom and pop stores, whatever it is, cannot sustain on thirty percent, fifty percent. Um, in many cases, they can't they they can't live off of seventy five percent. Yeah. So we're going to see a lot of things shift and I, I cannot, I feel like um, COVID is uh, the, the final nail in the theatrical mm-hmm. coffin. I really feel like this is a transition point that something was going to do it. Yeah, It was just going to happen over a period of about five years. Eh, maybe now you'll just see it over a period of like two years. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm now depressed. Thank you. You're welcome. That's what I do. I might have mentioned I might have mentioned many failed romantic relationships. Um, this is this is what you get into, folks. Some nerd is going to sit here and tell you, um, you know, all about why your your children will never get to go see movies again. Well, you know what? I, I told my uh, fiance what was it Saturday. I'm like, you know, I really what feels like today. I really want to go like to Blockbuster and go rent a movie, but. Sadly, that doesn't happen anymore, or it's not around. It was like one of those days where you just wanted to go to the block. You know, it was like you know, overcast. Seemed like it was going, even though 
it wasn't going to rain, but it was just one of those days where like, today is the perfect day to go to Blockbuster to get lost for like two hours and debate on renting again Back to the Future 2 or Ghostbusters and going, which one? Oh, wait, there's a new release. Mm. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I grew up in video stores, man. Yeah. It, I, I, I absolutely miss for me, it was always the mom and pop video yeah. store because that's where you're going to find movies, you know, that were, you know, more cult yep. or exploitation. And, you know, I wanted to watch all the, I wanted to watch Citizen Kane, but I also wanted to watch Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. So yeah, the, the mom and pop video stores, the mom and pop used bookstores, um, just going and browsing, yeah. you know, comic book stores, like I mentioned before, it, you know, that, that's a big thing, just going and browsing yeah. and I'm, I'm a physical media guy and Me I'm too. about, I'm about the experience and, you know, sitting here and, and watching the Lord of the Rings all weekend, mm-hmm. my brain is, you know, immediately taking me back to going to the midnight screening yeah. of all three of them and then hauling my ass out of bed to go see the first screening the next morning because wow. I'd bought my tickets a month before, yeah. you know, it's like I, I, those, that's where my brain goes. Yeah. And so much of what makes the, the cinematic experience so yeah. wonderful is the cinematic experience. One of my favorite cinematic experiences was actually going to see the dark Knight midnight release. And I shit you not, everyone and their mother was dressed up as the Joker. And it was just like, holy shit. Like everyone just dressed up as the Joker. Even like I saw someone dressed up as Alfred, the Mad Hatter. I think I saw someone dressed up as Two Face. Well, obviously because he's in the movie. But it was just a crazy experience to go to this movie and see people dressed up. It was one of my first midnight releases I've ever I've ever been to. And that's gonna be and that's you know, and you don't see as much. I guess the culture has changed. Where, you know, it wasn't as big for Avengers when that came out. But even like, you know, seeing even the newer Avengers, you didn't see people dress up as characters anymore. Even like seeing Batman versus Superman or Justice League, no one's dressing up and having a good time, I guess, because of what ha- what's happened in movie theaters. But still, like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but I went somewhere and I totally got lost with it. So I, so I apologize. No, I mean, Right. And the, you know, the dark Knight is an example of one of those zeitgeist films mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it was the right moment at the right, you know, the, the exact moment in not only pop culture time, but in sort of political time. Yeah. And it, it was a thing where, yeah, you would, you would have enjoyed it if you'd seen it, you know, on a Monday, but mm-hmm. going to that midnight screening with that level of energy it transforms the experience. Yeah. Even a, a shitty experience is made better by that, that energy. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, if you, if you sit back and you think about what it was like in 2015, when the force awakens came out yeah, and people are going, this movie is going to have, you know, for the first time since 1983, I'm going to see Han Solo. I'm going to see Princess mm-hmm. Leia. I'm going to see Luke, Luke Skywalker. And you, had lines, lines around buildings, you know, a week before Christmas. Um, you know, you, you, you saw that moment in time and you go, now it's like, 
know, the season finale of the Mandalorian comes on and it's just, people are going immediately to Facebook to go, Holy shit. Did you see the ending of the Mandalorian? Yeah. And it's a very different communal experience. It's not the same thing as standing in line with people who are and, and seeing all the cool, you know, star Wars shit people are wearing yeah. or the fact that for some people they're taking their kid for the mm-hmm. first time to see a star Wars movie. Yeah. And they're like, I did this with my dad or my mom. And yeah. Now I'm here with my child. And, you know, and you're kind of like seeing that and sort yeah. of sharing that moment and seeing how all these different generations and different types of people are all there for something important. Yeah. I agree. It's not the same thing. It's not. And, Facebook talk about and, and even like, you know, standing in line with these people like that, you don't even know. You just strike up an easy conversation with them, too. And you just like you're bullshitting about what you guys think that it's going to happen in the movie. And it's just like you're meeting these new people and like their thoughts and like, you know ideas of what the force awakens or any other movie that has that big tentpole idea behind it. And it's, it's really, it's really, it's really, it's a really weird, not weird, but like a very interesting feeling and a very like unique, um, feeling that I can't really put the faint, the, the can't really describe to me. I, you know, movie theaters already had this, you know, special significance for me because Mm -hmm. you know aside from the fact that i'm a filmmaker aside from the fact that i write about cinema high and low um but there's also the fact that i'm just a movie nerd i'm a i'm a story nerd Mm -hmm. i love to get lost in films and my son who is now eight years old and who i said was helping me make a movie right now Mm -hmm. um he was diagnosed with autism when he was two and there were, you know, there were a lot of things I was worried he would never be able to do in life. Um, just because of, of the fact that his particular brand of autism and, you know, there's no one size fits all. Um, everybody with autism is different yeah. and have different sort of things that stimulate or overstimulate. And in the case of my son, it tends to be a sensory thing. And I was very worried that going to a movie theater would not be something I'd be able to do with my son because the screen would be too big and the the, the flashing on the screen would be mm-hmm. too intense, that the sound would be too loud, even with noise-canceling headphones or something. I was worried that that was a thing I'd never get to do with my son. Yeah. And EMC, they introduced what is called sensory-friendly screenings. And sensory-friendly screenings would take place twice a week, mm-hmm. Saturday morning for sort of family-related films, something like a Star Wars or yeah. a Pixar or a Harry Potter or something. And um, then they would do a Tuesday night where it would be, you know, a more adult-themed film that grown-ups would go out to on a weeknight. Yeah. But it was a specific screening setup in which they left the lights somewhat up the theater Mm -hmm. they turned the volume down and they said this is specifically for individuals on the autism spectrum and their families and they can go to a movie and not worry about being shushed Mm -hmm. or looked at if their kid needs to stand up and flap his hands because he's really excited or he needs to pace the aisle because he's processing what he's watching or, Mm -hmm. or whatever you can talk you can do whatever you need oh, to do yeah. and enjoy this experience. And I ended up joining, I said at the top that I was an autism acceptance advocate. Mm-hmm. I am on the board of directors for 
uh, a group called the Howard County Autism Society. They're based at, right outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And they are the ones, thanks to, thanks to a very dedicated board member um, parent, this is the organization that got AMC to agree to doing sensory-friendly screenings. Wow, yeah. Now it's a national thing based on something that happened right here in Baltimore. Yeah. I was able to start taking my son to these screenings and to be able to not only allow him to see a Star Wars movie or a Spider-Man movie on the big screen and mm. experience something theatrically, but to take this as an opportunity to say, son, I'm still going to teach you movie theater etiquette. So if you need headphones, if you need sunglasses, if you need whatever it is, you know, a, a comfort object, whatever that might be, or to get up, take a walk, that's all fine. Mm -hmm. Let's work on trying to whisper if you have something that you want to say. Let's yeah. work on, you know, the world is not going to change for you. So yeah. you must learn to work within it. And I'm here to help you with that. Mm -hmm. Long story short, those screenings allowed him to be able to process films on a big screen, what he needed to do to regulate and could just go see standard screenings with me anytime he wanted. Wow. And so we spent all last Christmas one year ago going to see movie after movie after movie after yeah. movie and loving it. And so the point to that whole long speech, and I apologize, no, it's was simply for me to say it movie theaters have different significance to different people with different considerations mm -hmm. personally or in their family. And this for me is an example of something that I really miss yeah. and I don't want to lose. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally understand that. I, I just learned something completely new. Also what you were just telling me about that autism thing with, with AMC. I did not know that at all. Uh, that's really awesome. I'm going to tell actually my fr friend Mark about that as well. If the theaters get back as his son is autistic. Um, I don't know if he, I don't know if I should say that out loud. Maybe I'll have to cut this part out of the podcast, but still, um, it's a great thing to know. Uh, but uh, Eric, I want to say thank you so much. We're getting to the last two questions I have for you for the podcast. It's been a wonderful, sure. been a wonderful podcast. It's really great talking to you, really getting to know you. But the last two questions I have for you are one, would you like to give out your social media if you like to? You don't have to. It's just a question. Sure. Eric Christopher Myers, um, spelled with lots of Ks. Um, you can find me on Google. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, you can also find me as EKM. That's what I write under for Ain't It Cool News. Okay. Like I said, I write a lot of franchise history and genre theory. Um, EK Myers on all of the social media platforms. Come check me out. See my movies. Tell me what you think of them. Boom. And then last question for you is what's that last, you said a lot of golden nuggets today, a lot of great stuff, but what's that last one you want to give to the people who are listening to the podcast? Um, my golden nugget for everybody who's listening right now is that um, throughout the pandemic, whether it was a lot of people sheltering at home um, or people who were just trying to find something at the end of the day because they were an essential worker to help them get through the day, you had 
independent films. You also had independent writers, independent musicians, podcasts and shows like this one that you're checking out right now. You had a lot of people who were creating content during a time when the larger corporations could not support those people because those people are going to be the ones who are around and are going to continue to give you more great stuff. And it's as simple as pay for something instead of getting it for free. And also remember that five-star ratings and a review helps to push shows like this one out there to new people because that's how the algorithms work. So check out my work, check out other independent artists, make sure you leave at the very least a rating, a review is even better. And as soon as you are done with this podcast, make sure that you also subscribe, like, share, use your social media, get that out there and give these people um, the recognition that they deserve and the visibility to continue to do what they're doing. Thank you. I don't have to do my ending now. Thank you so much. No, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> fair. Sorry, I had a dog bark at me. Uh, he wants me to scratch him. But uh, Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It, again, it was a pleasure meeting you visual, virtually, not visually, virtually, and talking to you and having a great conversation. Um, and again, guys, thank you for listening. And remember, like he said, subscribe to the podcast. Again, guys, we are on Spotify, Overcast, TuneIn Radio, Anchor, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Podcast, you name it, we're on that podcast probably, or that pod, pod chase catcher, whatever it's called, pod catcher. Uh, and I can't do this without my frame chasers. I'm just trying to bring knowledge to all you listeners out there. And I hope you're gaining some great, valuable information, which I think we got a lot of valuable information today, guys, from Eric. And, uh, you know, I hope you guys are learning something from it because we all have a story and we all go through things at the same time or at different times. And I hope that the people that are on the show, 